What a joy it is to be back this morning to worship God together again through the study of His Word. So let's take our Bibles and open them together to our study of 2 Peter. 2 Peter. We are returning to our study of this great little book, and we have just begun really to scratch the surface of the profound truths that are being opened up to us here as we look into it. We have entitled our series, Faith That Finishes Well. Faith That Finishes Well. Titled it that because that is truly the intent of why Peter writes what he writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is writing to encourage us and to help strengthen our faith. Last Lord's Day, as we were together, it is I said that it was his intention throughout the book to ensure that we, as chapter 3, verse 18 says, to ensure that we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? So that we might not fall from our own steadfastness. You say, well, how do we fall from our own steadfastness, from our own faith? You're not talking about losing salvation, are you? No, we're not talking about losing salvation. No one can lose their salvation once they're in Jesus Christ. How do you remove yourself from something you never brought yourself into? You cannot. Jesus says in John 8, we are secure in the hand of the Father. Nothing can snatch us out of His hand. So we're not talking about falling from faith or losing salvation. That's not what we mean. We simply mean by being someone who is led away in our faith to trust something else that is not true. Falling from our faith or a faith that doesn't finish well, a faith that is following after some kind of error. And while we may say that that would never happen to us, that that would never happen to me as a Christian because we are people who believe the Bible. We have the Bible here with us. You have it on your laps or in your electronic device. You have a copy of the Word of God. We are people who believe the Bible. We know what we believe and we know why we believe it. And therefore, we will remain steadfast no matter what the circumstances that come our way. The moment that we say that, the moment that we allow our hearts to go there, we are already one step closer to failing. One step closer to not remaining steadfast. You say, why? Because the moment that we underestimate our own flesh... The moment that you as a Christian underestimate the battle that you have between your old life and who you are in Christ, the moment that you convince yourselves that you are strong enough in and of yourself for any deception that might come down the path, then you're already easy prey for the evil one to deceive. You're already setting aside, if you will, the armor that God has given you. You're easy prey to be deceived because you're putting your trust in the wrong place. You have a misplaced trust. 
The Apostle Peter found this out in spades as he and really all of the other disciples on that night in Matthew 26 that we read last week when Jesus was going to be arrested, when he went to the garden to pray on the night of his arrest, all of the disciples vowed to never fall away. We will not fall away even if it costs our very life. Peter said that, and the text tells us that all the other disciples agreed with that. They were all saying, here, here, we're with that. That's us. We won't fall away. No way. And of course, we know how the account goes. In spite of knowing Jesus, in spite of believing in Jesus, in spite of knowing what they believed and why they believed it, they all failed to remain steadfast. Not one of them remained steadfast in that moment of pressure that just came moments later. And upon reading a text like that in Matthew chapter 26, you and I go, yeah, we get it. We get it. I mean, if we were there, we, we, we can understand them. We, we understand that compromise is the natural tendency of the self. Compromise is the natural tendency of our own humanness. To find a way of least resistance. That's our natural tendency. To ensure that we do not have to stand alone. To ensure that there are others with us. To ensure that we, what I agree with, there are others who agree with me and with my thinking and with my actions. That's the tendency of the sinful flesh. And we have to understand that or we'll be easy prey. You have to understand that about yourself. You have to understand that about your old self. That you're now in Christ. You have to understand that your old self wants to go the easy way. Wants to go the way of least resistance. Wants to go the way of less trouble. The Apostle Paul knew this. That's why I read from Acts chapter 20 this morning when Paul was meeting with the Ephesian elders. And he warned and exhorted them to be on guard for yourselves. Be on guard for yourselves. Be on guard for not just yourself, but the whole flock. You need to be on guard. Why? Because of the tendency to drift. Because of the tendency of our own hearts to be led away. Because of the desire to be part of the crowd so that I'm not having to stand alone Because of the tendency to avoid controversy, the tendency in our own humanness to avoid conflict simply for the sake of ease. The desire for not having to be uncomfortable. The desire to not have to be uncomfortable around people who might disagree with you living as a Christian. The simple proclivity of self to seek comfort and avoid any kind of suffering at all. You need to know that about your own heart. We need to understand that about our old self. Because that's what the flesh desires. That's what the flesh seeks. 
But when I read Acts 20, remember Paul says to the leaders in Acts 20, listen brothers, you're going to need to be courageous. You're going to need to have courage. And therefore, I didn't shrink back from telling you all that you needed to hear, all that you needed to learn. Because courage doesn't come from you standing on your own will. Courage doesn't come from you standing on your own desires and your own fleshly ways. Courage comes only one way. It comes from knowing God. Knowing God. Paul says, I didn't shrink back from telling you any of that. Shrink back, that's a great term in Acts chapter 20. I didn't shrink back. Hupastello is the word. I didn't keep back. I didn't draw back. I didn't shun anything. Through my own self-withdrawal, through my own self-avoidance, I didn't do any of that. No, I didn't hold anything back because I understood the danger and I knew what it was that was your only protection and what you needed most. And so he said, I declare to you the whole purpose of God. I declare to you the whole purpose of God. Purpose, counsel, advice. That's what the word means in the original. I I declare to you, in other words, the whole advice of God. I gave it all to you. Even, Even if it caused me to have to stand alone. Every town I went to, even Jerusalem, every, every city I've went to, he says, the Holy Spirit has confirmed to me that there's trouble there. How did he know that from the Spirit? It wasn't that Paul was hearing voices. Paul knew that because every city he went to, there was trouble. God was confirming to him, listen, you're going to go, you're going to speak the truth, there's going to be trouble. There's haters of truth everywhere. And so you needed to hear all the advice of God. Well, beloved, nothing has changed for us today. Nothing has changed. This is so necessary for us to hear and to embrace. Why? Because it's easy to drift. It's easy for us to drift. It's easy for us to be swept up by untruth. To be carried along by what appears to be so right when it's so Wrong, so easy to be upended in our faith and to not finish well. In fact, we could even say, when we look at the landscape of evangelicalism today, that the wide stream of evangelicalism today is going to only get worse. It's only going to get worse. Things aren't going to get better, they're going to get worse. You say, well, thanks for the positive message, Pastor. You say, that's not very encouraging. Well, that's what the Bible tells us. This is exactly what Paul warned Timothy about in 2 Timothy chapter 3. As Paul was writing his final letter to his young protege in the faith, he writes to Timothy about what's going to happen. And he says to them in 2 Timothy 3, just listen. But realize this, Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Why, Paul? Why are they going to come? Because men will be lovers of self, 
lovers of money, in other words, narcissistic, materialistic, boastful, and arrogant, that's prideful. They will be revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful and unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. You know, the number one cause of divorce in the United States today amongst evangelicals, sadly, is irreconcilable differences. They'll be irreconcilable. They'll be malicious gossips. They will be without self-control. They'll be brutal. They'll be haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure. Lotus, this last phrase, rather than lovers of God. Now, the first, from verse 2 all the way through to that last phrase, it sounds like he's describing the world outside the doors of evangelical church. Shocker, he's not. He's not. These are people who hold, notice verse 5, hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Don't make any mistake about it. These are people who claim to know God who say they're evangelical, who say they believe, who say they hold to the truth, who would hold up the Bible and say, this is God's Word. Paul says, among them are those who enter the households and captivate the weak. Those led on by various impulses. That's the desires Internal fleshly desires. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because they're following after their desires. They're easily led astray by the false things, by the untruth. Just like Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, verse 8 says. So these men oppose the truth. But they're men of depraved mind, rejected as regards to the faith. Fortunately, Paul says they, they'll make not further progress. Why? Because their folly will be obvious. But you followed my teaching. You followed my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions, my suffering, such as happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all, I made it on my own strength, Paul says. No. Out of all of them, the Lord delivered me, he says. It was only by the grace of God and only by the mercy of God that I was delivered from any of them. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. You see, it's bad now, it's going to get worse. They're going to be deceiving and being deceived themselves. Paul says to Timothy, however, you continue in the things you've learned and become, notice, convinced of. Convinced of. Knowing from whom you've learned them 
And from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Why can it do that? Why do the Scriptures lead you in wisdom and salvation? Because all Scripture is inspired by God. Because all Scripture has been given to us by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. You see, why does this drift? How does this drift not happen? How is it that this drift can be stopped? The drift of the heart, the drift of the flesh, to go directions of ease, to go directions of compromise. How is it that we can remain steadfast in faith? Well, the answer to both of those questions is here for us in 2 Peter chapter 1, and the answer really is simple. It is the Word of God. The Word of God. Holding to and living in submission to the Word of God as God has equipped each of His children to do by faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, there will be no strength by simple, simply having faith There's no strength of walking by faith by simply just having faith. You must grow in your faith. And that happens through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is what we find Peter saying in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He begins to tell us just how this strengthening happens. Just how this strengthening happens. And as we begin, I I don't want us to be confused. I I want us to, to have our minds in the right place and not be confused as to what we're talking about here. Because we're not talking about how someone is saved. We're not talking about God saving someone by means of, uh, there, that person being right in the eyes of God, that person having been being justified, having their sins forgiven, we're not talking about that. When a person does that, it's through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one way to know, know God. That is through Jesus Christ. You cannot have a relationship with God any other way. So we're not talking about getting to know God in the sense of salvation. Peter says in verse 1, once we are saved, we are to grow in our faith. We are to grow in our faith. Notice what he says. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. How? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's how someone gets saved. So that's not what we're talking about. But in verses 3 to 7... He begins to show how this growth in faith happens. And in verses 3 and 4, we find out what God has done for us. And then in verses 5 to 7, we see what we are to be doing in our faith. 
what we're to be doing in our faith. Notice verses 5 to 7. We're not going to cover those this morning. We'll be in verse 3 and 4, but I want to read these. He says, now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in knowledge, self-control. And in self-control, perseverance. And in perseverance, godliness, and in godliness, brotherly kindness, and in brotherly kindness, love. That's, that's how we are to be practicing out this, the, the, the reality of what we've been given by God. And we'll see that in just a moment. And so we need to understand that to attempt to do any of these things in verses 5 to 7, to attempt to live in verses 5 to 7 as a person, to try to do these things without having the foundation of verses 1 and 2, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, the only righteousness that God accepts, to try to do these things without that, without understanding What we are given in our salvation, as we will see in a moment, verses 3 and 4, then all you have is religious work. All you have is an attempt to do things to please God that only produce nothing but empty hopelessness. That's it. All you have is someone trying to be religious for the sake of their own gain. None of what verses 5 to 7 say are doable without knowing Jesus Christ. You cannot. This is why Peter says he's writing to those who have received a faith the same kind as ours. These are the same people that Peter was writing to in 1 Peter. The saints who were scattered throughout Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia, Pontus, Bithynia who were saved according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit so that they might obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. It is those people who are truly genuine Christians. That's who he's writing to. None of these things are possible without that. Your fallen nature, you in and of yourselves without Jesus Christ, could never do enough to satisfy a holy God. You couldn't live perfect enough. And so Peter, before he ever reminds us of what has what we must do to strengthen our faith, Peter rightly reminds us of what God has done for us in Christ. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. What Peter tells us in verses 3 and 4 is the nature and character, beloved, of the Christian life. You want a definition of the Christian life, the nature and the character of the Christian life? It's right here in verses 3 and 4. Notice how the Christian life is described by the Apostle Peter. He says, right, you have grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord seeing, verse 3, that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises 
in order that by them you might become partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, I I trust, I hope, I pray that we can comprehend what is being said here this morning. Because right here, right in just those two verses, in those few short words, is a succinct description of the kind of life that is to be lived by every true believer of Jesus Christ. Right there is a succinct, capsulized description of what the life of a Christian is to be like. Peter says, I'm always ready to remind you, remember in verse 12, I'm always ready to remind you of these things. What things? Things that you already know because you have faith in Jesus Christ. You know, these are things that God has given you just because you know Christ. You have a relationship with Christ. What things are they then? The things about what you have and how you are to live because you believe in Jesus Christ. In other words, these are to be the foundational convictions in every Christian. You want to have Christian convictions? These are the convictions. Here's convictions you're to have. Foundational truths that should never be able to be altered in you. Some doctrine comes along, some false teaching comes along, some some words from the world come along that challenge the reality of this very thing. This is a conviction of yours. It's immovable. It's unchanging. The words that are false just seemingly bounce off. They don't penetrate. You don't follow. This is a conviction. It's unchangeable. That's what a conviction is. Conviction is something that will not change. A conviction is something that that undergirds the reality of courage. That's what Paul was saying to the Ephesian elders. You need to have courage. He, He was saying, I taught you everything because I want you to have conviction. I want you to be convinced of these things. You have to be have conviction about them. It's something settled in you by way of convincing. Now think about it. In other words, Peter's saying, listen, because you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, these things that are here for us in verses 3 and 4 are sure. They are unchangeable. They cannot be altered. These are to be your convictions. Now I am sure, more than ever before, that this is part of the problem in the Christian evangelical community today. This is part of the problem. This is why so many within the evangelical church, and seemingly it seems so many of its leaders today within evangelical community so easily follow after foolish and even heretical notions about the gospel who follow after these winds of things that come in and blow in that that under that, that undermine the truth of what it means to walk by faith in Jesus Christ or how someone gets to know Jesus Christ all of these strange things that come in and it seems like the bandwagon just follows along
Sad part, as a result of all of that, no one will ever be changed in the world who watches that. No one will ever be changed to someone who knows Jesus Christ. When professing Christians have no conviction about the things that they are given in salvation. When it's so easily tossed aside for something that's worthless. So what then is the character and nature of the Christian life? In other words, what are we to be striving for? What are we to be striving for? Well, Peter puts it in two statements. Peter puts it in two statements in the first seven verses of this chapter. He first says in verses 1 and 2, Know God. Know God. That's the first statement he makes. Know God. You want to strive for something in your Christian life? Strive for knowing God. And then he says, secondly, live like God. Know God and live like God. We can think of it like this, just in a simple way as we begin our time. We think about our Christian lives and what it is that we are to be striving for as Christians. What is it you drive at in your Christian life? Well, it all boils down to these two very characteristics. To know God and to live like God. To know God and to live like God. That, beloved, is the essence of the Christian life. To know God and to be like Him in our living. To be godly in the everyday practice of our living. That means that the Christian life isn't about philanthropy. It isn't to be driven by philanthropic drives in organizations and things like that. It isn't to be driven by some kind of esoteric experience whereby you try to find a way to touch God in some kind of experiential way. I don't need to ensure in my Christian life that my views on various things are, the, are in the right place. That, that's not my drive. That's important. I, I need to, to have right views, and those right views are to be born out of Scripture, but that's not the drive of everything in my life. No. The Christian life can be summed up by knowing God and by living like God because of my faith in Jesus Christ. Remember how Jesus said it in John chapter 17, verse 3? I mentioned this last week. This is eternal life, he said, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. People say, what is a Christian? What is eternal life? Well, no one could say it better than God himself. Jesus said to know God and Jesus Christ he sent. That's the same exhortation that we keep hearing from Peter. No God, no God, no God. That's why I've exhorted us from time to time about the danger of redefining God. Why it's so dangerous for us in any kind of way to redefine God differently than how God defines himself. To redefine God is to not know God. 
preach an entire sermon on redefining God out of Psalm 50. If you want it, you can find it. It's out there. In other words, in a simple way, we have to ask, is God real to us? Think about that. It sounds very simplistic. It sounds like a very childish way of asking something or even thinking about something, but we as Christians have to ask that question. Is God real to us? We talk about it. We say it. But in our practical living, in every day, in every thought, in every word, in every deed, in everything we allow to be absorbed into our mind and heart by which we react to and by which we carry our lives, is God real to us? You see, be careful. Don't think that's a silly question. Don't think... That we are Christians, of course we believe God's real. Because we look around and we see how some Christians live. God must not be real. To live the way some Christians live. To follow after things some Christians follow. To buy off on the philosophies of humanity that some buy off onto. Is God real? The way some professing Christians today just blatantly flaunt sinful behavior? Blatantly. The way evangelicals today openly and gladly disregard the clear commands of Scripture in their lives when it comes to being with the people of God in worship? Is God real? Did God say, don't forsake it? Is He real to us? Or is that just some kind of statement that I can go, well, I'll take it today, maybe not tomorrow. As if we Christians get to say how God is to be worshipped. As if we, as the children of God, have the privilege to say to God, tomorrow you can use me, today, no way. Is God real? As if the world has some kind of authority in telling God how He's to be praised by His people. Does the world have that kind of authority? Has God advocated His authority to to demand and command His people to worship Him the way He's called them to worship Him? And the world comes along and says, oh no, you can't do it that way. Somebody might get sick. Really? Is God real? Is God real? Is this God's church? Are we God's people? Do we, professing Christians, have the conviction that God is actually in our midst? See, beloved, when we pray, are we speaking to a real God? You see, beloved, we have to ask the question, do we know God? Peter says that we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Why? 
because that's the nature and character of the Christian life. That's the nature and the character of the Christian life. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. Why? So that in order that purposeful, here it is, the purpose, so that by them you might become partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. You see, verses 1 and 2, Peter says you got to know God. you got to be a Christian, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop simply at faith and, okay, i got my fire insurance tucked in my pocket. Now I'm good. I'll just go on and live the way I want. No, you can't stop simply at salvation. You can't stop simply at knowing God by means of reconciliation. We are to become like God in our living It's an incredible statement that's being made here. That takes the the Christian bar that maybe we've always thought was here and it puts it way up here. Because Peter is telling us, and I don't want us to miss this, Peter is telling us that the Christian is a partaker of the divine nature. Think about that. The Christian is a partaker of of the divine nature. Beloved, what that means is that each and every Christian by means of faith in Jesus Christ, because of the divine power of God, Peter says in verse 3, because of the very nature of God, which is perfectly glorious and perfectly excellent or virtuous, the Christian is one who because of partaking in that divine nature, the Christian can live in God-likeness. That's why he says it the way he does in verse 3. His divine power has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. You see, we could say it this way. We can... We can Get it in our mind so that we understand it this way. By means of the power of God, the same power that created the very earth that we're standing on, the same power of God that called something from nothing, the same God who called Lazarus from the grave with a word, the same God who called Jesus Christ out of the grave on the resurrection morning. This is the power of God. This is divine power. By means of that power, by means of the divine power of God, we have all that we need to live a God-like life. So listen, if you want the purest definition of a Christian, then it's this, a Christian is a person who is a partaker of the divine nature. Now that separates all kinds of things, doesn't it, when you think about it? 
Someone claims to be a Christian. They claim to know God. They claim to have a relationship with God by means of believing in Jesus Christ, and yet they live as if they're godless. They live in such a way that the world has effects upon them in every kind of thing. It's as if they're not saved at all, and probably they aren't. Because the power of God has given you the power to live a God-like life. A Christian who is a person who because of faith in Jesus Christ is a partaker of the divine nature. And therefore, the traits and characteristics of God are visible in their life. They're visible. They may be small. They may be minuscule, but they're there. And they're growing. They're becoming more and more like Christ each and every day. They live like Christ lived. The life of godliness. A life lived through the knowledge of Him who called them. How? By His own glory and excellence, it says. His divine power granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness because we know Him. It came through the knowledge of Him. Who's that? The one who called us by His own glory and excellence. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, a Christian is not someone who merely believes that their sins are forgiven in Christ. Praise God that we do believe that. They cannot stop at that. The one who is forgiven is a partaker of the divine nature. He's a new man, a new creation, a new being. He is to be living out these characteristics. That is the calling of the believer, unquote. That's who we are. To be anything else is to live against who we are. A Christian is a person in whose life the life of Christ is being formed and it is being reflected in practice. In other words, Christ can be seen in your life in action by what you stand for, by what you stand with. I know what's going to happen. Somebody's going to say, well, isn't that simply just too much to ask of a person? I mean, after all, we're only human. We're only human, and it seems to get harder and harder and harder to live in the world. I mean, we're living here. Why doesn't God just come and take it all away? I mean, why would He leave us here to live like that if He's asking us such a high demand? How can we live the character of Christ? How can we do that, especially when the world is constantly going against us? Well, the answer is right here for us. Peter says, first, know this about God. Know this about God. That He has supplied all that we need. He's granted to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. 
In other words, as a Christian, you have nothing missing. You haven't come up deficient. God hasn't forgotten one little thing supplied to you. There's no deficiency in your equipment in Christ. There is no missing part. It's not like when I buy a project from some store and come home to put it together like I do. I don't read the instructions. I just begin to look at pictures and put it together and then I find three screws behind me that I don't know where they went. And I set it up as if it's fully put together and I put the screws in the drawer wondering when it's going to fall apart. God doesn't do that. God's fully equipped us. There is no missing part. And they have been given to us, notice, by His own glory and excellence. It's by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. He's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through a knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and virtue. He didn't call us by ours. It wasn't because of our goodness and virtue that He called us to Himself. No, it was because of His own. It was by His own. It was through His own glory and His own virtue, His own excellence. And it's by those, His own glory, His own excellence, that He's granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. You say, what is Peter saying? Listen, he's telling us how it is that we receive all that we need for life and for living a God-like life. All of those things that we need and all of the ability we need to live that God-like life are given to us through the knowledge of God which we know through Jesus Christ... There's no other way to know God. You know God through Jesus Christ. We know God by looking to Jesus Christ. We know that because He's God in the flesh. All that we need for life and godly living, we have through knowing Jesus Christ. So what is it that a Christian is given in this knowledge then? This knowledge of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What are we given that actually enables us as Christians to live that God-like life here and now? Notice what he says. He says that we have been given through that His precious and magnificent promises. Some of your texts might say His exceedingly great and precious promises. Listen, beloved, never underestimate the promises of God for us as His children. Never underestimate those. I think this is where we fail. This is where we go wrong. We, we, we believe in Jesus Christ. We, we know God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we stop thinking about what God has said, what God has promised, what God has told us about Himself, what God has told us about what is to come, what God has told us He does for us here and now in this life. The promises of God are only great and precious because God is great and precious. Because God is is full of glory and virtue. That's why His promises are precious and magnificent. 
You see, you have to know God. You have to not redefine God. You have to see God for who He says He is and for what He says He has done. And you have to leave all of that in the words of God and in the mind and heart of God as God has said it. And you have to embrace that. It has to be a conviction of your heart. It ought to be a conviction of your heart because they're magnificent and precious to us because of who God is. Say, why do you say all that? Because it's the great and precious promises of God that we are told to tightly hold to in life. That's what we hold to. It's the promises of God concerning the glories to come that we hold to in life. It's the promises telling me that He will never leave me or forsake me that anchor my soul. It's the promises of God that curb my fleshly desire to fear things I should not fear. It's holding to the very precious and magnificent promises of God that stand in the way of my own flesh to say, I don't want to go that way. The Bible is full of the promises of God that He have told us And each and every one of the promises of God are based upon His glorious and virtuous nature. Why did Abraham believe God? It wasn't simply because God was better than any other God that he had ever worshipped in the Chaldean world. No. It was because of the glorious, virtuous nature of God. Peter says that he called us by that nature. He drew us to himself to be his children by his various glorious nature, by the nature that he gave us all of the promises that he made. What promises? Well, here's a promise. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is God real? You see, if He's not real, there's not a whole lot of foundation to that promise. Those aren't just the words of Paul to psychologically help people get through a hard day. No, there is therefore Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a promise of God based upon His own glory and virtue. We have complete forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That is a promise of God that we hold to that ought to cause us to have a conviction when it comes to someone saying, you could lose your salvation. No, I can't. No, I can't. Why? Because I'm smarter than somebody else? No, because God is excellent and God is virtuous and God promised it. That's why. You cannot move me from that. It's not based on me. It's based on God. Or this one, to those who, that receive Him, to them He gave the power to become sons of God. Is God real? To those who embrace 
Jesus Christ, who turned from their sin and embraced Jesus Christ, he is given the power to become sons of God. We are the children of God. You cannot have a relationship with God any other way. It has to come through Jesus Christ. What about this promise? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Are you a new creation or are you the old creation? Is God real? Does that actually happen or not? What about this? I will never leave you nor forsake you. But I'm having a hard day. It certainly seems like he's left me. He hasn't. He's promised it. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Come to me and I will give you rest, he says. Come to me, I'll give you rest. But it's easier to find rest this way. The world says, go this way, it's easier. Jesus says, come to me, I'll give you rest. My yoke is light. My burden is easy. Jesus said, I will come back for you. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Or are we living to stay here? Are we living to stay here? See, what gracious and exceedingly great and precious promises. Go through the Bible, beloved. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of promises by God. To say the least of the fact that in Christ, notice verse 4, the Christian has escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. You might become partakers of divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in this world by lust. That's what we were before Christ. In the world without hope and without God. Children of wrath, even as the rest, Ephesians 2 says. That's how we lived. According to the corruption of our own lust, our own epithumia, our own strong desires. That's the word. Strong desire. The desire of our own fallen nature. That's how we lived. We lived to fulfill the nature of our own fallenness. But in Christ, we have been rescued from ourselves. In Christ, we've been relieved from the guilt that comes with sin. In Christ, we've been removed from the penalty of our sin. What a glorious thing. In Christ, we've been transferred into the kingdom of His dear Son. So God says that in Christ, according to my promises, promises that are based upon my own very character and nature. You have been given all you need for life and for godliness. You no longer need to live for yourself according to your own selfish desires. Now you live for me. You live like me. And so what's the implication? The implication is that I now no longer live on the wisdom of men. 
I no longer live to fulfill the desires and whims of the flesh and fulfill the desires and the whims of the world around me. As a Christian, I don't rely on that which will not help me know God. I don't rely on the wisdom and philosophies of men, the elementary principles of men that only talk about human things. No, the only wisdom I desire is the wisdom from Scripture because it is from God. And it is good for teaching and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. That's what I rely on. The Christian wants to truly know God both intellectually and experientially. And so as we face this world as we face the troubles of our world, as we face the foolishness that comes our way each and every day through the information streams that we are linked into, we don't lose heart. Why? Because while we may be weak, He is strong. Do you know that God is strong, beloved? Do you know that? God is strong. God is omnipotent. God is sovereign. While we may fear here, we know that fearing anything here is not born out of a knowledge of God. Fearing anything of this world is not born out of the knowledge of Christ because Christ promises to never forsake us. We hold simply to that one promise. What can we fear? What should we fear? Nothing. And therefore, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as God has promised to give us in submission by the power of the Spirit to His Word, I grow in my faith. I grow in my trust. And I become more of a conqueror. This is what Paul's, or Peter's going to say. Right? If these qualities, verse 8, are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's times when I'm weary and I get tired, I hold to the promises of God. Why? Because I know God. Because I know who God is and I know what God has said. And I hold to those promises and I hold on to that knowledge of God. And when I am afraid, I hold on to the great and precious promises of God because they reflect His glorious nature. They reflect His character. I hold on to the reality that I am in Christ and there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that I am more secure now than I ever will be in any other time in my life. In Christ I have a blessed hope. That's what I hold to. That in Christ I can live a God-like life because He has supplied me with everything I need for life and for godliness. And that even if He should, throughout this physical life, cause my life to end, I know that I have a glorious home in Christ in the heavenly places. Therefore, beloved, we, we've been called to a supernatural life. That's what we've been called to.
his power that starts us on the Christian journey. It is his power that accompanies us all the way through this journey as we live like Christ. That's what enables us to stand firm. That's what equips us as Christians to stand firm. Paul said to the Philippian church, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Is God real? No wonder it's so easy to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Knowing God, living like God, that is a faith that finishes well. That's the Christian life. We'll get more next time. You've been patient. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that we have no hope without you. We know that it's because of you and you alone that we have any understanding of these magnificent truths. The world is a lost place filled with false words, it's filled with no hope. Only you can save, and we know that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. You promise that you will return one day, that no one part of your word will go unfulfilled. Your character demands that, and your divine character will do it just as you have said. So I pray that we would rest on what you have said, and then live as we have been equipped to do. Help us strive evermore, Lord, to know you more, that we might be settled in our own hearts with conviction, that we might show the world by our own lives who you are and what salvation really means. May we live as those having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We pray these things in our great Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.